As if we don't have enough disaster in the real world right now, two new movies dramatize danger from above, Moonfall and Don't Look Up. We're talking about both on the Think Christian Podcast. Welcome. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and host of this show, where we believe there's no such thing as secular. With two similarly themed disaster movies out right now, I thought it might be interesting to consider what a Christian posture looks like in the face of calamity. Not just fictional, but real-world catastrophe as well. When war looms, pandemic hits, or climate change threatens to upend things on a global scale, how do we balance taking action with trust in God's providence? How do we avoid helplessness? Claude Acho and Sarah Welch-Larsen are going to join me to discuss. Before we jump in, I want to give another quick reminder about the TC Movie Club. Our next online meeting is right around the corner, 2 p.m. Central on Sunday, February 27. We'll be gathering to discuss Joel and Ethan Cohen's 2007 Best Picture winner, No Country for Old Men. I've been making video essays to jumpstart those conversations, so you can find my one on No Country over in the Think Christian channel on YouTube. Now, Movie Club members should have already gotten an email with an invite and a meeting link. We'll send a follow-up one as well. If you're not a member but want to join, it's easy. Just go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club. We'll get you that info so you can join us at 2 p.m. Central on Sunday, February 27th. That is, if the moon hasn't already crashed into the earth. Let's talk moonfall. I have Sarah Welch Larson here, who I can introduce for the first time, I think, since she's been on the show. Uh, Sarah, you are now the co-host of a podcast that we're big fans of here at TC, Seeing and Believing. So congrats on that. Tell us a little bit about it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, I co-host with Kevin McLenathan, who is actually a fellow Chicagoan um, for both of us as well. And every week we search for the sacred on screen in movies and occasionally in TV. And then um, we just introduced a new segment where we go back and we watch movies that one or the other host hasn't seen yet, which has been quite a lot of fun to watch. So um, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah, it's a really good show. If if TC listeners aren't familiar with it already. It's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Network mm-hmm. of podcasts. So I uh, really encourage you to check that out for good coverage on film and, and TV. Now, I guess, Sarah, is it safe to say you and Kevin aren't going to be covering Moonfall on Scene <laughs> and Believing? You guys have better taste than that, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm a simple woman of simple tastes. I enjoy okay. a really bad sci-fi movie on occasion. Uh, we will not well, be covering Moonfall for Seeing and Believing, which is why I'm glad that we're going to be talking about it here. <laughs> yes, that's why you're here, because I know I know you're not uh, going to shy away from such things. So, <laughs> so I thought it would be good to have you on for a discussion of Moonfall. We don't even need a plot summary for this, right? I mean, the moon is going to crash into the earth. I think mm-hmm. that's what people need to know. Uh, panic mm-hmm. and, um, let's say, suspect space science ensues after oh, yeah. that. <laughs> In breaking news, the governor has just ordered the mass evacuation of the entire West Coast. Moving to higher ground is the only possible chance of surviving. Stay awake, my brothers and sisters! Uh, We have the stars, sort of an odd pairing, Patrick Wilson and Halle Berry. Roland Emmerich, the director, he's the disaster mind behind Independence Day. Uh, The Day After Tomorrow, 1998's Godzilla and some other films. 
So, yeah, as you mentioned, Sarah, we are both in Chicago, and in a fitting real-world disaster of sorts, a snowstorm came in this past week that canceled the press screenings for mm-hmm. Moonfall that you and I had planned to attend. It does, we should say, take a pretty big snowstorm to knock out things in Chicago. So that was significant. Yeah. You and I did have to catch it up then over the weekend. We scurried to the theaters, and I did see, I think it was on Sunday, you logged a one and a half out of five star review on Letterboxd. Yes. So care to expand on that rating. I mean, part of it was probably the atmosphere because there were two other people in the theater with me and one of them started snoring by like the five minute <laughs> mark, unfortunately. So I did have a blast. I got my intelligence insulted, but I did have a blast watching this movie. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, it's gorgeous. It looked really, really good. I mean, if you throw like, I don't know, robotic, like kind of Lovecraftian smoke monsters, like a la Lost mm. into your movie, mm-hmm. like I'm going to have a good time. So I, I enjoyed yeah, myself. And that, that actually comes into play fairly early on, which at mm-hmm. that point, it's a mysterious, um, exactly as, as you described, this space swarm mm-hmm. that sort of kicks off the action, which has, yeah, the visual design of that. And a lot of this is pretty strong. I think Boy, I don't even remember which one. One of his movies, it was either 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow, was just an ugly, bleary mess. And mm-hmm. I would say there's definitely more crispness to the imagery here, which is to its credit. But yeah, the person snoring, I mean, come on, you got to give the movie a little more than five minutes. But um, I don't know if it's kind of the curse of the still end of pandemic, we hope, reality, where you go to a theater and you're relieved that it's not mm-hmm. crowded, but for a movie like this, you kind of want a bigger crowd at the same time. I would to, have loved to, to laugh with exactly. a large group of people, and that unfortunately exactly. didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, which kind of brings us to me for the you know the main element of the movie that is fun to talk about is its ridiculousness. I think for you with that star rating, I I didn't enjoy it much more. I think it was it was just too much burdened by, and all of Emmerich's films have had these family dynamics back on the ground. There were so many supporting characters in this one, and they had such complicated family dynamics of whose ex was whose ex and what their relationship (laughs) was and how the kids were related. And honestly, I could have cared less about any of that, really, Mm -hmm. because the characters were so thinly drawn. As I said, it was very confusing. And the movie just had way too much of that for me and not enough of the ridiculousness and the silliness that I do want to get to. So so let me hear from you um, what your favorite silly moment was, what your favorite ridiculous moment was that maybe you wouldn't say makes it worth someone going to see this, but at least lightened your experience of it a little bit. Um, I want to know why oxygen was sucked into space by the moon and then mysteriously yes. came back and then kept disappearing and coming back. Like It felt like it was purely for dramatic stakes with all of these families on Earth, but I couldn't understand why it was happening in the first place, why it was a danger at one moment and then not a problem the next. Like, it just, it, none of it made sense at all. I think that is one of the many questions I had coming out <laughs> of the theater. And I think I, I, I dragged Debbie, my wife, along, and I think at some point about two minutes out of walking out, we we realized we had too many questions to really bother with, and we just sort of gave up. So the <laughs> oxygen one was one of those. Now that I'm thinking about it again, could it have had something to do with, again, I have no idea of the science behind this, but when the moon orbited closer, it's kind of like circling ever closer, right? As the movie mm-hmm. goes on. Yeah. So when it came close, did the 
gravitational pulls somehow like suck oxygen away. And then when the moon left, the oxygen came back. Could that be it? (laughs) I have no idea. I guess that's what was going on. But also the moon was going around the Earth very, very rapidly. I feel like it It rose and fell like every 40 minutes or something. And I couldn't understand why that was happening either. It felt very like Legend of Zelda or something. (laughs) And that ties into my favorite part is I really liked how this entire movie characterized the moon as the villain. Like it was Mm. almost this sentient monster that was chasing these characters. And there is a great shot where we get the moon. It has caused all this havoc. It might have been actually after the oxygen sequence. Mm -hmm. And it's caused the damage. And then it's kind of lowering back over the horizon. And it's almost like if if it had the moon's face, could have had the eyebrows kind of like raising, like, <laughs> I'll be back to get you again as it disappeared. So kind of wish that it had imagery, like a mustache or something. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a twirling moon mustache. That that would have been even better. So some of that imagery did keep me amused. Not unfortunately enough of it to say, yeah, I'd recommend actually going out to see this. So then why are we bothering talking about it on the Think Christian <laughs> podcast I do think, you know, this sort of fictional disaster, it can stand in for real-world anxieties. And in this way, Moonfall can be an interesting case study for our current situation. If you take climate change and human responsibility for much of that seriously, and I think science-minded Christians do, then the movie, it can feel sort of like this, again, the speed of the moon coming back, this accelerated version of Mm -hmm. what we see happening in incremental motion in real life around us. So I especially thought of this when, again, the tidal waves were being affected and there were so many scenes of flooding, right? It's it's somewhat mm-hmm. reminiscent of the rising waters that we've seen in recent years. So thinking about humanity's response to all of this in the movie, yeah, we get the crazy space mission that takes up a lot of the running time, but we also see a lot of people fleeing for some reason to Colorado. That seems to be the place to go. Either Mm -hmm. their homes in Aspen or more prominently, there's this government bunker that becomes um, a setting for the film. And so many people of the main characters we see are fleeing to this bunker. So you have an arc idea here, of course. And interestingly, another Emmerich film, 2012, an arc concept features even more prominently in that one. So I was thinking about this idea of the arc, and it made me wonder if you know, that biblical story offers any sort of biblical model for us today. So, yes, that's what God called Noah to do in a time of ancient disaster. Is anything like that a a Christian response now to sort of huddle and leave it in God's hands? So basically, I guess what I'm asking you, Sarah, is what do you see as a way to live as a Mm -hmm. Christian amidst world-shaking anxiety? And that could be climate change. It could be the prospect of war. It could be, I don't know, a pandemic, let's just say, something like <laughs> yeah. that. Any thoughts on on that, that moonfall, if it didn't spur immediately, it might be kind of rolling around in your mind now. Yeah, I think the best disaster movies, and I mean, I'm not much of a disaster movie person, but like the ones that I find to be the best are the ones that have this seed of hope in them. Like there's even a line in Moonfall where someone talks about how the military is trying to fix the problem today without really thinking about like the consequences that are going to happen tomorrow. The military in this case is trying to nuke the moon, which is just a chef's kiss, like incredible solution to a problem. You knew it was going to come to that. (laughs) Yeah, it had to. But I think that there is the seed of hope of we're going to try to 
solve this situation so that other people further on down the line can have a good life too. And I think that there is kind of that seed of of hope as well in everybody who's trying to seek shelter for their children and potentially for their kids' kids, for everybody to have like a future on the planet, trying not to nuke the moon because the fallout from that might potentially kill everybody on the planet as well. And it kind of it kind of made me think about the Ark wasn't the final solution to that particular disaster. It was, let's keep everybody alive until after this disaster is over and then we can rebuild from there. So not so much hiding from the problem as dealing with the problem with the resources that they had. And then after that, not just staying on the Ark, like everybody leaves the Ark in the end and they go back out into the world and they rebuild it. So kind of made me think about how we are called to be, you know, the hands and feet of Christ in the world. So we know the end of the story. Like there's a lot of hope there. Christ has solved this all for us, but it is also our job to continue that work as the body of Christ, you know, in the world, continuing that work. So, yeah. So more of a preserving Mm -hmm. perspective and attitude than, like I said before, a hunkering and just like waiting out the end in as comfortable way as possible for us immediately. Maybe that's where the family element that Emmerich seems so insistent on, including in all these movies, does connect, though. It speaks to what you were saying about they do emphasize frequently there are two younger daughters of one of the the main families. And, you know, think of the girls. I think they say a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's the next generation idea, which is very biblical and I think very tied into the Noah story as well. So, so yeah, I can see that. That that does make a lot of sense to me as well when it comes to, to Moonfall. I don't know how much of that they were working into the movie themselves. They might have been a little more concerned with the uh, special <laughs> effects, but, but yeah. I like that. I like how that resonates. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think... Boy, this goes, we don't want to get into spoilers for the handful of people who, despite what we've said, still want to go see Moonfall. Mm-hmm. Do you think we are being threatened in the end after this sort of, let's just say, 2001-ish, interstellar-ish direction the movie kind of takes? Are we being being threatened with a Moonfall 2 here, there? Did you get a sense of that? Uh, I mean... I kind of want to say that I am hopeful for it just because <laughs> I want them to go a little bit more gonzo, but yeah. Okay. Maybe, possibly. <laughs> and that's, you know, that hint suggests it would pursue further. I assume that's what you're referring to as gonzo is kind of that direction it takes, which I didn't expect at all. Me and I think is different from some of Emmerich's other movies, right? That I've seen at least. Yeah, it, feel, it felt a little bit more, I don't know... Um, wider in scope, I guess, than mm-hmm. a lot of his other stuff. I don't want to yeah. say too much more about it because it is a pretty bonkers reveal. <laughs> yeah. I would say like like deeper think science fiction maybe mm-hmm. is the turn it takes compared to to disaster science fiction. And that did help perk me up a little bit. I'll admit, like I was fading there for a while and then it took that turn. I was like, oh, unexpected. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. I'm always mm-hmm. a sucker for that sort of stuff. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't always work out well. And in this case it's probably split down the middle, but at least it, I don't know, it woke me up. I, did it wake the person in your theater up or were they just out the whole time? I think they woke up, but it was also a pretty loud movie, so I'm not That's entirely true. sure. I guess the one problem that I have with that twist is that it kind of plays into a conspiracy theory that's being mm. like played with throughout the movie. And I just, I'm not sure... I mean, it's not a very believable conspiracy theory, but I'm also a little bit troubled by just like the idea that the government would try to hide something that's going on with that particular plot twist. 
another question we had that we could not quite answer. Like, yeah. why Why was that ever, what was the motivation for ever hiding that? I, I never could get that either. So, Other than having someone who could explain to the audience what was going on and then also repeat the obvious multiple times. Like, I could have just done true. without that character completely. Yes, that that's very true. And I think the conspiracy element, which, again, is also in Emmerich films before this, it's a little harder to kind of laugh at or laugh off now that conspiracies of all sorts have proven to be real world dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so when you get a movie like this, that's kind of in a sense, in one way, proving a conspiracy to be true. Yeah. That part, I think it would have been easier to laugh at say five, 10 years ago in an Emmerich film than it really is now. So agreed. All right. I think we gave Moonfall plenty of the attention it deserves. So thank you for that, Sarah. Before I let you go, just a tease and a confirmation. You're going to join me, right, for the next gathering online for the TC Movie Club for No Country for Old Men? Looking forward to it. I love No Country for Old Men. It's my all-time favorite Coen Brothers film. So I'm excited to talk Perfect. about it. Perfect. Mm-hmm. You're the right person to have. So that's going to be 2 p.m., Sunday, February 27, we'll be gathering for that. And again, if you're not part of the TC Movie Club and you want to join us, there's still time after you hear this episode. So just go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club and you can sign up and then we'll email you with those details and an invite and a meeting link, everything you need. So to gather with Sarah and I and discuss No Country for Old Men. So yeah, looking forward to that, Sarah. We'll see you then. Me too. Thank you. was a little bit of the end by, of course, the Beatles. They closed out their album Abbey Road with that track, and it wound up being their final recorded work together. Seems a fitting choice for this episode's Spotify mix of songs contemplating the end, I'd say. I wrote a piece for Think Christian about Get Back, the Beatles' expansive documentary produced by Peter Jackson, and some of the spiritual perspectives it brought out as I watched it. Keep an eye open for that and let me know what you think. Disasters, the ecology, death, some pretty heavy stuff, but songwriters and artists have been contemplating these things for a long, long time. This mix, which includes tunes by Dawes, Public Enemy, Marvin Gaye, R.E.M., Bruce Coburn, Barry Maguire, The War on Drugs, and a lot more, was strangely comforting to pull together. Even the Skeeter Davis classic, End of the World, which you'll hear a bit later in the show, struck me in a new way. I guess maybe it's that music reminds us we're not alone in our fears about these things. Find the mix by searching for the Think Christian profile on Spotify and following it. You'll see this one, entitled Disaster, right there alongside all the other mixes I've pulled together over the years, and even the massive archive mix that pulls all of the songs together into one place. Pro tip, if you're bored sometime or maybe have a road trip ahead, try shuffling the archive list. It's over 1,500 songs long now. And when a tune comes on, see if you can remember what the theme of the show was that that song was chosen for. And if you can think of any disaster songs I should add to this mix, tweet them to me, at John J. Thompson, and I will certainly check them out. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to keep your eyes to the skies and your ear to the ground, not so that you can worry more about the end of the world, but so that you'll know when it's your turn to represent some hope and light around here. Because sometimes the sky really is falling. Peace. Josh Larson here, back with the TC Podcast. 
Claude Acho is joining me to consider another disaster movie about a large object uh, on a crash course with Earth. Don't look up. Now, this one, Claude, recently, just yesterday as we're recording, was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Was that a surprise to you? That is a big surprise to me. Um, I have to admit, I haven't been as clued into uh, you know the, the movie scene over this last year as I like to be each year, but I was surprised. I was surprised given just how um, polarizing, I guess, the reception to the, to the film has been. And I don't know if it really achieves all that it goes for. So I was surprised to see it validated with with that nomination. But uh, hat, hat tip, hat, hat tip to, to them and, and their team. But yeah, definitely a surprise to me. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't, it was missing that one ingredient that uh, most Best Picture nominees need, which is pretty decent reviews, you know, not necessarily all glowing or that everyone loved it. But at least, oh man, I hate to put things in Rotten Tomatoes terms, but at least a fresh rating, right, <laughs> on that right. website. And I think I saw someone tweeted out, you know, the the graphic of all the nominees, and it's the only one that actually has a rotten rating. Wow. Um, so critics went after it pretty hard, which did make it somewhat of a surprise that it got the nomination. But then I was thinking about it. There are so many stars in this thing, and the Oscars love their stars, you know, so there's a lot of Hollywood pull to that. And then the director here and co-writer, Adam McKay, I will always love him for Talladega Nights, the Will Ferrell mm, comedy. There but we go. he has moved on. He's moved on to like more um, serious-minded comedies that I think this falls into. So you think of The Big Short and Vice. Both of those got Oscar attention. So McKay himself has a little Oscar pedigree. So I think that mm -hmm. combined with the star power of the movie maybe explains it. Yes. Um, but maybe we should back up for people who haven't caught this yet. I imagine more people will catch up with it with that nomination, and it is on Netflix. But the plot here, basically, Don't Look Up, follows two American astronomers, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. There's two of those stars. They discover an approaching comet that's going to cause, quote, an extinction-level event in six months. But when they try to sound the alarm and present the science, everybody from this Trump-like president, played by Meryl Streep, to the hosts of a hit cable news show played by Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett, to this profiteering tech mogul played by Mark Rylands, they all either ignore these two, discredit them, or exploit them. And then in the background, you know, oblivious to all of this is an internet-addled, uh, conspiracy-thirsty populace. So yeah, you could describe this as maybe an activist comedy, a, a satire from McKay. I think it's meant to be sort of commenting on climate change was probably the initial thought. It does also work as a commentary on reaction to COVID-19, how that was handled. The movie overall wants to be something like uh, Dr. Strangelove, I think, which was about uh, the proliferation of nuclear arms. So, ton going on here, Claude. Yeah. How did all of that work for you? Did any of it work for you? Yes, it was a, a mixed bag, I guess, um, which is, is probably maybe what a lot of viewers could relate to. I think there were some some moments that felt incisive and kind of stung a little bit and were reflective, I feel like, in, in a good, healthy, satirical way, and they landed. There are others, I think, also because some of these ideas and critiques have almost become sort of like tropes. Like, we've heard them so much. You know, we've seen them. We've experienced this with family. We've seen this play out in our churches and across our country. So some of it feels like, I wouldn't say punching down, but it, but it, we've gone through this a lot. And, and so it felt like sort of 
like somebody doing stand-up and telling us the same jokes that we heard for the last, you know, seven sets. So it's sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I get that, but this isn't really connecting with me. So I think it sort of has sporadic success there. And then I think the other thing I realized too, just watching it was just, it's just hard to do uh, satire well and where you cross a line and kind of go over the top and you lose, lose the point, lose the sincerity, kind of lose, lose the heart. So it, it felt uneven to me, but there were definitely some points where, you know, I, I laughed, laughed hard and there were others that said this, this doesn't work. And there's others that I said, Ooh, yeah, we, we need to think about that. Yeah. And in- Regards to it reflecting real life maybe too much, it reminds me a little bit of when the Borat sequel came out, Borat 2, which was, you know, making broad satirical points about the United States that exactly as you just said, we have lived through the last five to 10 years. It wasn't the first Borat movie, I think, for many audiences was revealing about the underbelly of some segments of America. And then, you know, we kind of have been awash in that sense. So for Borat 2 to come out and be hammering some of this stuff, exactly as you described it, it's, you know, this is in our daily lives. And I think Mm -hmm. even though this is an exaggerated comedy as well, I kind of had that same experience. And, And just going back to McKay too, and, you know, my love for Talladega Nights and the other more broad comedies he did, I feel like, uh, he's kind of, his filmmaking has lost sort of a leanness that the best Mm. comedy has. These are really bloated exercises. This is an over two-hour film, and I'm thinking of yes. Vice and The Big Short as well. They're bloated um, in what they're tackling. They're bloated in how the narratives actually play out. And then even the form, you know, like those two previous films, we get this barrage of jump cuts and insert shots and frantic stock footage. It's very hectic, and it's very repetitive, to your mm-hmm. point, too. It's often mm-hmm. hammering something that we already have been told by the movie with a visual element. And the one thing that jumps out to me as I'm talking is the scene, this isn't necessarily a comic scene, but uh, the DiCaprio character is in the car with a couple other characters and a song comes on the radio and he says to them, you know, listen to this song, listen to this song, because he wants it to, to point out some meaning about it. So what what does the filmmaking do here? They, they have the song on the radio. DiCaprio tells the other characters and us in the audience to listen to it. And then the next step while the song is playing, he starts reciting the lyrics at the mm. same time. So it's that's kind of the mentality the whole film yeah. seems to have is we want you to understand something and we're going to like layer it three times to make sure yeah. you do. And it, it just, it got a little exhausting for me, even though I, I did laugh at points. Maybe it was there a gag that just to bring some positivity to it. Was there a gag that did work for well for you? I like the recurring thing with Jennifer Lawrence's character about they're charged for the snacks at the White House yes, early on right. by a general. That's right. I did and like that, she just yes. keeps coming back like, I can't understand why he would do that when they were free. <laughs> yeah, that one worked right. for me. Did any did any jokes work for you? Yes, that that worked for me. You know, and I think some of the some of the things that worked too, and again, getting on that theme of of sort of the repetitive nature of some of the points and, and the message. And, and, and in some ways, I think that the preachiness of it, the early jokes around the smartphone and the early jokes around just the way uh, these companies, right? And we can, we can, we don't need to say the allusions to the companies that I think are being made, but the way that uh, information is taken and, and, and used and used against us and, and, and some mm-hmm. of these different sort of things and the way that we are so, so much uh, amusing ourselves uh, to death to you know make an allusion to Postman uh, Neil Postman. So I think those things initially, the first couple jokes and gags there, really worked for me. Okay, 
And then, yeah, but once it's repeated over the course of two plus hours, yeah, you're kind of like, we, we yes. get it. We get it. Yeah. I, I do think the movie is helpful for, you know, this bigger idea that we want to consider on the show and just this question of what a Christian posture looks like in the face of impending disaster. So whether it is COVID-19 or accelerating climate change and you know, the movie highlights one posture I think we might be tempted to take, and that's to believe that we, with, you know, God's blessings of wisdom and technology and wealth, but that we can save the world on our own. And we see that going back to the Mark Rylance character, who, yeah, is the head of this company that stands in for a couple of the big tech giants who run our lives these days. At one point late in the movie, he's been brought in with this, he has got this plan, how they're going to handle this comet, Right to divert the comet, basically. And he gives this speech, and it not only talks about how they're going to take care of the comet, but then he starts like drifting off and saying how, at the end of this mission, we will have ended injustice, and we will have ended poverty. And it's just kind of keeps blowing up his ambition. So I was wondering what you made of that moment, or even that Rylance character. I, I did, yes. Uh, that that character I found really interesting, and I do remember that moment. What I like about that is it, it felt like the satire that cuts across a lot of demographics. I think we can get triumphalistic in terms of, you know, on, on the church side of things, knowing the commission that we have from God, not just, you know, it, it's not only the great commission, but the great commandment and uh, to care for God's creation. And so we can think that, hey, if we get it together, we, we, we'll fix everything. And then I think also on the sort of, um, for those outside of the church, there can be a, a real sense that like, yeah, if we just kind of get these ducks in a row, get the unenlightened people to get enlightened and do these sort of things, then we'll fix all this stuff. So so that works for me because I, I feel like that that hits home in a lot of different categories and lanes. And I, and I found that character um, really interesting and, and I think revealing about, yeah, our desire to trust in ourselves, you know, thinking even about Jeremiah 17, like, um, you know, when we trust in ourselves alone, the prophet says that we're cursed, you know, we're actually, we're not helped um, because we're, we're insufficient in and of ourselves. And so that worked for me. And, you know, related to that, the other thing I, I was thinking about in connection with, with the film and what a Christian response might look like to disaster was just sort of the way people respond to that claim of salvation, essentially, uh, of that claim of rescue. And, you know, it made me think about uh, just the category of characters that we get in the Proverbs, the fool, the scoffer, and the simple, you know, and, and sort of the simple kind of being that person that's sort of the blank slate almost, like they're kind of on the fool's path, but they are they could be convinced by wisdom. And then, you know, obviously the fool who uh, Proverbs tells us takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing their opinion, you know, and I think you can, you can see that reflected in the characters played by Perry and um, Kate Blanchett. And then the scoffer, you know, which is the person who is all the way down the trail of foolishness and then is sort of spreading the foolishness around, you know, and, and bringing and kind of hardening others. And so that was the thing that I, I, I thought about was just sort of, okay, we have these claims going out, right? Disaster's coming. We see these things. And there's all of these competing claims. And then the way that we respond to those, you know, really obviously reveals a lot about ourselves. And I think we would be wise to to reflect and if we're operating in, in the lane of the fool, the simple, you know, the scoffer, or, you know, trying to be wise, engaged, and, and faithful. Yeah. So what does that, that wise, engaged, and faithful posture kind of look like to you? You know, like how, how do you make sure you don't step into one of those patterns or those pathways even as that those sort of claims are swirling around us, 
Is there sort of a, a general position or mindset even or prayerful attitude that you would say um, we can adopt when we are facing things that are maybe not on this extreme level, but still world shaking in their own way? That's the hard part. I think about, you know, you, you mentioned this too earlier, just sort of that paradigm or taxonomy for kind of the way in the film this this information is being presented or or being disseminated right with mm-hmm. the aim of exploitation you know ignoring or you know whatever the third was and and I just think if we if we would be willing to think through those grids not just in terms of hey how, how might that be imposed on us but also how might we be prone to respond in these sort of ways and just to yeah. be reflective in that sense you know, I think the other thing you see in the film, too, is just the need for, all right, and this is obviously basic for our practice as Christians, but the need for uh, community, you know, around you to to process. Yeah. And you got to find the right community because you see community gone wrong in this film, too, where, again, to, to point to the uh, celebrity kind of worship and the news anchor dynamic in the film, that's community that sort of compounds folly and foolishness. But you also see other glimpses where there's sort of community that's actually trying to wrestle through these things. So obviously we need we need to do that. I mean, and and I think too, a sort of even, I guess the disaster sort of what it does for for people, whatever scale it's happening on, is just sort of uh, the unveiling of like what's actually in our realm of control and what is not, and mm. and then thinking about what faithful praying, living, loving, and serving looks like with the things that are actually in our hands or near us yeah. and having to release the things that are not, you know, and knowing that we we have to entrust that to to God's care. Yeah. There's a real need for humility there. I want to go back to your comment about community, because I think that connects to the last thing I wanted to ask you about. And it is this really strange moment of community, a last supper, really, that we get towards the End of the film. We'll tread carefully for those of you who haven't seen it. But um, basically, DiCaprio and Lawrence's characters have gathered with uh, his family and a few other characters around a dinner table together. And this is where things are not looking good. You know, they're running out of options and they have chosen to set aside the technology and all of that other stuff to just gather around a meal together. So it's this uncharacteristically quiet scene for the movie. And one of the characters at the table is Timothy Chalamet's character named Yule. And this is a skater who gets involved with Lawrence's character. And as a matter of fact, in an earlier scene, he tells her that he was raised as an evangelical, which he hated. But as an adult, I think the phrase he uses, uh, I found my own way back into it. So he's presented as this, you know, genuinely faithful person. And at this dinner table where they're all gathered, He offers to pray. Dearest Father and Almighty Creator, we ask for your grace tonight, despite our pride, your forgiveness, despite our doubt. Most of all, Lord, we ask for your love to soothe us through these dark times. May we face whatever is to come in your divine will with courage and open hearts of acceptance. Amen. So I have to know, Claude, uh, how did how did this prayer strike you? I, th- I think one of the other characters says afterwards, uh, wow, it 
didn't know he could preach or something like that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's would you right. would you say the same thing? You know, I I would. I, I think you know, in as you mentioned, in a movie so oversaturated, it's really long. It's uh, overwhelming in terms of <laughs> stimuli and all this sort of stuff. And this is this is that quiet moment. This is the moment of sincerity. And uh, you know whether that connects with people is is you know to each person. But for me, this did connect it, and I wanted to believe the sincerity that felt present there, and um, it comes across. I think it's it's well done, and I and I think the other key for this is to contrast it with the other moment of prayer that happens at a different point in the movie with Jonah Hill's character who uh, works in the White House under Meryl Streep, uh, the, the character who plays uh, President Orlean. And he prays for material things, right? Uh, you know, the disaster's coming. Right. So, you know, he says essentially like, hey, all this dope stuff, you know, cars and apartments and clothes and all that, like, man, I don't want to see it go away. So I'm going to say a prayer for that. Amen. You know, that's essentially what <laughs> yes. he does. So, you know, I think I think the other thing is if you uh, hold the end of prayer by, uh, by Yule Chalamet's character in contrast with Hill's, I think you see which obviously uh, has heart in it. And I think the other piece for... Yule's prayer is just the recognition of of failure, you know, <laughs> of, mm. of needing mercy and needing guidance that comes not from, you know, ourselves, not from the tech overlords, not from our own sense of progress, but from outside of us. So, you know, I'm always going to, I'm always going to buy in on that. <laughs> yeah. There's more of that humility, I think, in the prayer, even a little bit of confession. So, it was a moment that I found really striking, especially against everything else we got in the film, and um, you would just uh, you'd love to know how that ended up in a movie like this, where it is. I think it works, but also kind of comes out of nowhere and, and is set up a little bit and not entirely followed through on, but is definitely a fascinating touch. Yes, and I, I'm glad you said that because it's also undone. I think by the rest of the movie, unfortunately, and mm. um, I think there's some there's some post credit scenes that again I think just sort of undo. The sincerity that comes in that that prayer moment, and uh, and again, it's a matter of excess. And I think the challenge of of doing satire well. So I think the prayer stands, but I think it's actually not the last taste in your mouth as as a viewer. And because of that, it it, it gets discredited, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, thank you, Claude. You know, I'm not going to let you go without asking you to remind folks about your forthcoming book, Reading Black Books. Right? That's uh, on yes. its way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. May seventeenth, you can um, you can pre-order that uh, again. I think I've said it on previous pod. If you if you enjoy what we do, I think Christian, I think you'll you'll really um, want to give this book a look. It's kind of the same ethos and spirit, and, and just trying to reflect Christianly about great art, and in this case, great literature, American African American literature. So so yeah, give that a look. Reading Black Books coming out uh, in a couple months. So yeah, I would love uh, would love for folks to give that a peek. Hit that pre-order if you're interested, and uh, yeah, appreciate the support. There you go. Yeah, it's a great read. Maybe maybe we can do an excerpt or something at thinkchristian.net or definitely have you back on the podcast and find a way to talk about it here. We'll celebrate it some way in May, all right? Love it. Appreciate that. apocalyptically themed love song there from Skeeter Davis titled The End of the World. Going back to 1962 for that one. 
Davis was originally a country singer with her siblings, the Davis sisters. She then crossed over about mid-century into pop and gave us that classic. We don't have murderous moons or attacking comets to deal with, as far as I know, but climate change is its own slow-motion disaster, and we are, of course, still reeling from a pandemic. So how are Christians called to live in such times? Talking with Claude and Sarah and reflecting on Moonfall and Don't Look Up, it seems that a biblical posture to take might be one of humble stewardship. Trust in God's sovereignty over our own abilities while still doing what we can to protect and preserve this good world that's been given us. So holding Colossians in one hand, where we're told that in God, all things hold together, and the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 in the other. You can keep up with Claude and Sarah and connect with them on Twitter at Claude Atro and at Daji Boffin. Of course, we are on Twitter as well as Facebook. You can find us at Think Christian. If you ever want to watch us chat away, well, all the video versions of the show are on the TC YouTube channel. That's also where you can find the video essays I've been making for the TC Movie Club series on the films of the Coen brothers. Speaking of YouTube, if you are watching this right now, well, you did miss out on a couple of tracks John J. Thompson selected to accompany the show. You can catch up with those songs and a whole bunch more all around the theme of disaster by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. And don't forget to check out John's post over at thinkchristian.net on the new Beatles documentary, Get Back. The Think Christian podcast is a production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Find out more information at reframeministries.org. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassel. Thank you for listening. We'll get back together again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.